0: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Simone Drake who is one of the two editors of Are You Entertained? Black Popular Culture in the 21st Century. Um, Simone edited this with Dewan Henderson, and it is a really fascinating interrogation and exploration of Black popular culture, its meaning, um, and a lot of the various dimensions to it um, as we think about and try try to understand the role of popular culture, particularly Black popular culture in the United States. But I'm going to let Simone talk to us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Simone to the New Books podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this really interesting project.
1: Hi, Simone. Hello, Lily. Thank you for inviting me to talk about Are You Entertained? Um, So this project kind of, I guess, was a long time in the making, both as far as producing it, but also just in my thinking about it. Um, My first year in uh, my graduate program in um, African American studies, I took a course um, on on Black feminist theory, and Michelle um, Wallace's and Gina Dent's Black Popular Culture was on the reading list. It had just come out either that year or or a few years before. And it was, um, as a classics and English major, it was really my first introduction to an actual academic course that engaged with black popular culture and I was I was really quite fascinated by it um, and you know that, that kind of stuck with me but fast forward many years later um, I, I started working in the area of black popular culture but also in teaching it and some things that I, I kind of picked up on, um, was that it was really hit or miss, whether it was approached as a field of study or something you could just pick up and do, right. Because, because it, it, it was something that you liked or you enjoyed. And, and so at first I thought about doing a, um, uh, a journal on black popular culture, because I was on a board with a, um, with a, for another journal with Indiana university press and the, um, Serial editor there had talked to me about it, and I talked to one of my mentors, and and she said, "Why don't you just do an edited volume? Um, because it's expensive to to be able to get a journal started up, and, um, and and did I really want to have to do that work year after year? So, so I decided to do the book, and only and then I found out that it actually took years and years. <laughs> to um, get an edited volume really organized, especially um, one that, that kind of has some different facets to it. So that, that's kind of, and I started working on it with a friend from um, graduate school who, um, who actually had a master's degree in Black popular culture. I mean, I'm sorry, in popular culture. And, um, and we would often have conversations about it actually being a field. So um, he, uh, he and his passing and right when we were getting started, um, and so we had taught when he was sick, we had talked about it. And one of our other um, graduate school buddies, Dwan, made really perfect sense for um, asking her to step in and
2: work, work on it. And so that's, that's kind of how it was born. That's the genesis. So you didn't take up editing a journal in perpetuity.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, you know, that wasn't really my idea. It was the editor at, at the press's idea. And I'm glad that my mentor said, why don't you just do another book like Black Popular Culture? Because it's been a quite a long time since that came out. And um, and, and she actually was the, the professor I took the class with in, um, well, I might as well say 1997. Um, so, and, um, yes, so people did warn me that edited volumes aren't exactly a cup of tea to, um, to, to do, but, but we, you know, the contributors hung in there and, um, eventually we got it all pulled together.
2: I mean, it's a really, really interesting book. And, and that was also what I wanted to ask you about in terms of the construction of this edited volume, which does have a number of contributing chapters, But it also has a number of interviews um, Mm -hmm. that kind of preface each chapter. And I was curious about how you came, you and Duan came to sort of structure the book this way and include these chapters, particularly as you were kind of doing a kind of update of the 1992 work. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes,
1: so... I don't, I I would say it just sort of evolved organically. Not that we set out thinking, okay, we'll have chapters, we'll have, um, interviews. Um, but I mean, what really happened was there was one contributor who wasn't going to be able to get an essay in by the due date. And I thought, oh, darn it. I really wanted her to, to contribute. And so, um, just really on a whim, I was like, well, would you do an interview? and she said, yes. Um, hers ended up being the the longest interview that was, (laughs) that's in it. Um, And it really kind of ended up being an essay in and of itself. But, um, and so then I thought, well, you don't want just one interview. Um, And so we decided to kind of, to get enough where they sort of were like uh, bookends for each section. Um, And, and to get people who have, who have been, you know, who are, more senior scholars and who have really um, situated what they are doing as b- black popular culture studies and could talk about it in ways in which, you know, we might better understand that it is a field of study that we are approaching and not, um, you know, you, you like Cardi B's last latest rap video and you want to, and then you want to write a paper about it. But, um, but you, you don't, you don't have any sense of the lack, li- um, cultural kind of genealogy in which um, in which she's producing that work um, and, and and you wouldn't see that happen in, in other forms of cultural studies right? like um, so that's um, so that's how the the interviews came and then one other thing that I wanted to be sure that we had was was visual and to some degree um, or visual texts and so um, the the chapter um, the, uh, in the first section by E.K. Newsom, uh, was was a very late addition to make it so that the visual art wasn't just stuck in. <laughs> and that that um, I didn't, re- I mean, we had to work with um, with our editor, with Ken Wissaker, to kind of figure out how to bring in the visual without it just being stuck there, standing by its on its own. Um, yeah, so the, the visual sort of essay um, was, was how we managed to do that
2: and i think that it works really well because you're right i mean a lot of times when you are talking about popular culture in written form you do have these static images right that they're 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 taken from a film but they're mm-hmm. a static image and so i totally understand the um, the want and desire to integrate something that's more than just, as you say, stuck in image. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> in in a, in a book about popular culture, because um, you also can't listen to the music. While, I know, right? You know, know, in the book, as it were, you can read mm-hmm. the lyrics and so forth. But yeah, it's it is sort of the difficulty of writing about popular culture, but wanting to have the experience while you're doing it. Um, and understanding it in that in its context, um, and so I, I did want to ask you a little bit about you know sort of what you've you've nodded at also in terms of the history. You talked about the genealogy of understanding um, not only popular culture but specifically Black popular culture. Can you start out the book talking about the Stuart Hall essay um, and understanding essentially um, what is this Black. Uh, and, and this is a kind of frame for the, the dive that the book takes into so many different areas of understanding Black popular culture in our contemporary environment. Can you talk a little bit about how that framed um, a lot of the work that uh, came into this book? Of, okay, of, of wanting to make sure
1: that we recognize the sort of genealogy or, of, of Black popular
2: culture? Yeah. I mean, yep. not just that, but also particularly this, the Stuart Hall question. Oh.
1: Well, I mean the Stuart Hall question, it, it has been, and I, um, and in some ways it's foregrounded and it was foregrounded in the earlier collection and it's been, you know, that, that particular essay has been um, reprinted so many times in so many different um, collections, but I also don't want to, um, to, to center it, um, and I, I know that one um, one um, contributor pushes back against that. I think Patricia Hill Collins does. Um, yes, so I mean, like thinking about what the what the black is that's that's an important thing. But I think that um, so you know for me as I was really being introduced to black popular culture as a field of study and and not just you know something to pick up and do, I had to first begin to understand that folklore was part of black popular culture, right? I mean, I think many times people just think of the very immediate now moments as, as black popular culture, but, um, I mean, you can, you can, it, it existed in eras, but it also comes out of these, um, kind of folk traditions. And that's why earlier you would have these debates about low and high culture and things like that, that, um, that we've, we've kind of moved past, although, um, I, I think you, you could see how they're still relevant in the, the sense of, like, curriculum and whether black, whether popular culture generally is incorporated into um, traditional disciplines or not, right? Um, and some do and some don't, and I think it partly depends on what kind of departments they are, um, whether, they, whether they choose to um, house popular culture studies within them. Um, so, like in the introduction, one thing that we talk about, and um, that was really great, I think, when I was interviewing um, Lisa Thompson, because she teaches them too, was um, going back to like the Harlem Renaissance, right, an era where you you literally have um, African American artists who are um, being, at least some of them. Being supported by white benefactors, who then want to influence right, um, what black art looks like and how you produce it, and you have these debates between um, people like George Schuyler and um, Langston Hughes and, and W.E.B. Du Bois about um, really kind of like what constitutes black art, and um, and you know, and so I think that's an important way of looking at, and even before you even begin to think about answering over time that, that question by Stuart Hall. Um, and I think it helps you see how over time the answer, you know, changes or has more nuance, um, and can be somewhat different in different contexts and time periods. So, um, so yes. So I think the question is important, but I think also kind of working through how we get to the point where we're at um, and is, is also is also important in, in how we approach um, working in the, the contemporary moment.
2: And I wanted to ask you in terms of thinking about popular culture in general, as you said, there's kind of this tension as well within disciplinary areas not only with regard to black popular culture, but popular culture as a form of academic study. Um, and you, you cite throughout the book, the book does wrestle with this question of capitalism and the consumer economy that's connected to popular culture. Um, and it's, uh, it's fairly forefronted in your book, which I think is important, um, to understand the place where popular culture exists. Uh, but I was wondering if you could talk about how your own thinking about popular culture and specifically Black popular culture is situated within sort of this capitalism and consumer economy.
1: Okay. Well, I think it's complicated. And I, I remember in um, Stuart Hall's essay there, he he gets to the, not with that, that question that we all know, but um, a different part of the essay gets to the sort of vexed nature of being, moving from the margins to the center or from... Um, or for the popular to, or black popular culture to be um, accepted or incorporated, and I think part of that is that you um, you you lose some control over representation, right? So when when it becomes mainstream or when it becomes recognizable by the masses, then there's a part of it that that doesn't belong to you anymore, right? That that you can't you can't control and exert the same kind of ownership over. Um, and and I think that you know when you aren't always controlling the production, that can have you know result in very precarious types of situations, um, and so the the consumption does become very central. Um, you know whether it's you know whether it's black artists who were were pretty much like swindled out of um, good contracts um, or um, or where you know. Uh, work wasn't copyrighted, and then it was literally um, stolen and reproduced by white artists. Um, you know, th- these types of situations, and I, I think some are more unique to per- particular time periods, but there's a way in which it, it, it continues, you know, still um, today. So I think that that is one. Um, I think so. Capitalism and consumption are are, are very much central to that, and um, and the ways, you know, whether it's um, black actors being paid less, um, black visual art selling for less. Um, there's there's always this way in, in which um, capital is at the center, right? And and who's getting to profit? And um, a lot of times the producers themselves are not proper uh, are not profiting, or there or there's a real disparity in their profits. Um, so that's I think um, it's something that that haunts us. Because, right. I, mean, um, I mean, even during, if you think about during the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, Zora Neale Hurston wrote about having to ask um, her benefactress, or as she called her, fairy godmother, as, um, about shoes, like buying a new pair of shoes. Right? I mean, so um, co- contemporary cultural producers might not be quite in that same situation, but, um, but it's always a struggle. Right? There's always this, this struggle for equity.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: That's it's also more embedded in this dynamic, as you're saying, with regard to black popular culture than popular culture in general. Yes, um, because of the sort of undercutting um, and minimization of the credit or the the person who's producing it um, and how it operates in a capitalist setting or environment. Yes. And and so I wanted to ask you to sort of take us through the book a bit, um, and it's it's divided into, as, as you note, sort of um, four sections and a and a final section, final interview, um, and and they are all sort of um, umbrellas. Um, and I and I loved the way that that you and Dwan sort of structured this in not sort of saying, you know, films music, um, <laughs> um, you know, visual arts. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I thought that the, the sort of ideas of performing, politicizing, owning, and loving Blackness, um, were really much more thoughtful and, and guiding, um, in thinking about Black popular culture. So if you could take us through the sort of what these sections talk about, um, starting with performing Blackness, that would be fabulous.
1: Okay. So, yes, they are in what are more thematic or conceptual themes. And we kind of had to wait and see what with what we had as far as co- um, contrib- contributions to figure out what those might be. But we definitely didn't want... Um, yeah, because the other thing I think about popular culture is that um, it's kind of hard for it not to be interdisciplinary, yeah. um, and to to have you know these multiple disciplines that are really kind of simultaneously in conversation with one another. Um, and so that you know we wanted to produce something that that really kind of looks like how popular culture is, is produced. Um, so performing blackness is the first um, is the first section. And um, so we cover um, television, music, and um, like and, like stage performance um, with the, the chapter. So Raylena Josephs, Mutt's like me, um, looks at partic- specifically at comedy, but um, I think pretty much in the context of of um, television. Uh, shows and and really kind of interrogates this notion of the post racial, and um, and um, fo- with some focus on Obama, um, and and so the ways in in which um, actually it's it was his joke about being a mutt that frames her work, um, and then we have um, Black Radio with Emily Lordy, where um, which I I think was really um, really interesting the way in which she could bring in radio in the second decade of 20 of the, of the 21st century, because there's a point where black radio, you definitely would want it in a collection on black popular culture, but not in, you know, 2015, 2020. Um, it, it just doesn't have, it doesn't have that same, um, uh, you know, I mean, like during the civil rights era, black radio was, was critical. Um, before social media, you still had, um, it as an important kind of black community resource, um, but that's faded in some ways. But with these musical perf- performers, um, she was she was able to um, to kind of recenter that history um, and and make it relevant for now, which um, which I, I think is a great way of capturing um, how important it once was and and how we um, have refashioned it in some ways to still make it. Um, useful, um, and then Vincent Stevens talks about um, cabaret music and camping, camp style, and um, and resurrects some performers that I think many people um, would not be as familiar with, and thinks about that space of the cabaret and um, queer identities and performance. Um, that I, I think takes us to a place that many times people just don't think about when they think about Black popular culture. Um, and also takes us back um, in time some uh, to an earlier period, which I think is also important because, um, because I mean, Black popular culture ex- existed prior to the immediate moment. And so it's, it, it does a good job of helping us to remember that. Um mm-hmm. And then the final actual essay is is not the traditional essay. It's it's the visual essay by um, E. K. Uh, Newsom, who himself is an artist. Um, and I owe a lot of gratitude to Nina Mercer, one of the other contributors. Because um, I I needed some artists to contribute. And I I wanted it to be artists who um, are established as artists, but, you know, not necessarily the artists that are that are that are showing that are I I, I wanted it to be artists who um, I don't know who I could actually send an email to and say would you contribute (laughs) Um, as, as opposed to, you know, the ones who are in. Um, the Guggenheim, or the Museum of Modern Art, or who um, who we're very familiar with, um, and and these artists do. I mean, they people are familiar. They are familiar, but they just haven't, you know, had a, an entire exhibit at
2: the Guggenheim,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> um but, I, but green, I think yeah. that still speaks to the way that art is produced right I mean because even the ones who have had those exhibits at the Guggenheim started with you know with having to build up to that and right. um, and and to having to really kind of engage in more kind of local communities first and then broader so um, so uh, we have that um that essay uh, because i I like we were talking about earlier. I, I, I wanted it to be as multi-sensory as possible, right? With, um, with the limits of print. <laughs> so, and then for the interview, Lisa Thompson really made sense for this section as a playwright um, and um, and to, to think about um, performance. So section two. The next one is politicizing Blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that starts off with Kelly Jo Fulkerson D'Cua's, um essay on the comic um, writer artist Jackie Orms. Um, and and again, and this one takes us back in time as well, um, shifts us from the, the very immediate contemporary moment, uh, and you know comics have are increasingly becoming quite popular. I know at my university we actually have a comics like museum now, or comics comics library. Um, and, and do a variety of annual, um, like comics conferences. And I mean, and, and that runs through our English department, which is where popular culture is housed, uh, popular culture studies is housed at the university. I mean, when I was in doing degrees in English, nobody was talking about comics. I know. <laughs> right? I mean, and, and I mean, it's now it's, it's huge. I mean, Rebecca Wanzo just published a, a book on um, on black superheroes and um, Deborah Whaley has, has done one as well on black women and um, like comics or superheroes. So it's, it's really changed a lot, but just because people weren't academics, weren't really writing about comics 20 some years ago, doesn't mean that the comics didn't exist and that they weren't important political kinds of critiques. And um and I, I think it's great that um, it's an African American woman um, that gets the focus in this um, text because we we often don't don't hear about them in that space. Um, yeah, it's,
2: it's it's a male. It tends to be a male dominated space.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and and I on it, I didn't know anything about Jackie Orms before reading this essay, so um, it was good to to learn about that. Um, I learn about her. Um, and then we have Eric Darnell Preacher's um uh, essay on queer kinships and um two like web series. Um and you know, I, I think since then there's been an, a number of um black um like artists or directors who who really were able to launch careers off of web se- successful web series. Um, I think we've kind of shifted from that platform, but when you have somebody like Issa Ray, who, who started with, with Awkward Black Girl and, and then got her actual television series. And so, um, so I think the web series were important kind of precursor for some of what we're seeing now with like, with black, um, filmmakers and, and, um, directors being able to get opportunities on platforms like Netflix and things like that. So Derek, uh, Eric is looking at um, two web series and the, the ways in which queer kind of um, kinships and family um, are, are um, represented in those. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, his offers that kind of important look at um, something that we're moving a little bit away from, but that is important for understanding where we're kind of at right now with, um, with um, television and film. And also um, important that he is having us look at, like, queer identities, um, which, you know, over time, sometimes were often not addressed, even when they clearly existed. Um, and and there's been work done on, on that, too, but um, but not quite enough. So, and then the last um, essay is David Leonard's on um, the NBA, right? <laughs> And I know, like sports, it's kind of you know, oftentimes it's like in sociology, and it's sort of like the sociology of sports. Um, but there is that popular side of it as well. And so I thought it was it was really great how he looked at looked at the sartorial politics of like fashion and the NBA um, as opposed to the sort of athleticism or athletics side of it, which is really what you would often. Um, which is what you're more likely to get right or or like the politicization of things like coaching like coach who, um black coaches and um or you know co- college players getting uh, whether they should be compensated for their images and things like that um that are that are um that are not necessarily in the realm of popular culture. So um, yeah, so he looks at fashion and the ways in which these players were, were using it um, to make political statements um, without necessarily saying anything. So. um, And they continue to do that. Yes. (laughs) Various. I mean, you know, gestures, clothing, um, kneeling. Right. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so it was good to have something about sports um, in, in this one. And uh, the interview with Tracy Sharpley is more uh, international diasporic focused. Um, that, partly that is the work that she does. Um, but also in the, in the um, the black popular culture collection from the nineties, the it was actually much more um, international than uh, us focused. And so uh, I did want to, to have some sense right, of, of how, culture flows and and travels and um, how we think about that.
2: Yeah. I found it really interesting to, to, I am constantly thinking about that these days too, with regard to American culture flowing out um, and how it's consumed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And Uh, also what comes in and how we consume it. um, Or at
1: least that was something I looked at in my first book. (laughs) Um, And so yeah. So it's, I think it, you know, it goes both ways and we don't, we don't necessarily always, always think about that.
2: And so the next, the next section is owning blackness, where again, we start having some of that discussion about the consumer and capitalist side of the product itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, Shanice Thompson is focused on Black Twitter right? um, as a as a site of resistance and focuses specifically on um, on Baltimore and um, Freddie the uh, murder of Freddie Gray by the Baltimore Police Department, and so and and looks at the ways in which Black Twitter responds and ways in which people resist through social media, um, and and also brings in this this sort of um, trope of signifying that um, that might present itself differently with sort of like each sort of generation or iteration of it. But that is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a carryover from um, slaves being brought to the United States from, from um, Africa, from West Africa. And so it draws on um, West African folk traditions. So, um, you know, when you talk about signifying, you, you really are um, historicizing. Right. Um, black popular culture um, and how it didn't just appear yesterday, right? It didn't just manifest out of, out of um, whoever's the hottest thing last night. Right? Um, and then Richard Schur uh, does one that's on um, legal studies uh, or brings in legal studies, but by focusing on um, trademark and branding. And um, and and takes us back to like to to fashion, and I I think that this one is really interesting because I mean we I think if we think about um, the legal side of it we might think a bit more about um, intellectual property you know when you're thinking about appropriation and things like that and um, and so to, to put the focus on on trademarks and brands I think is um, is a really helpful way to to think about like consumption as well, as well as, um, um, oh, what's, the, uh, you know, what, what people are, are profits. Right. Yeah. Um, and yes. Yeah. Because I mean, we, we've, branding has been com- become quite big. I think even if people don't register it as branding as what, you know, someone like, um, P Diddy or Sean Combs or whatever, whatever, whatever name he's going by now, I don't know what he's going by. Um, tough daddy i mean but it it, you know he he wasn't just entertaining i mean like he's branding yeah um or you know beyonce certainly is a brand right and i don't know that that language that's always gets applied and certainly not the kind of legal implications right um so that i think that was um kind of like a good interdisciplinary way of 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 bringing that together and and allowing us to think about like ownership, um, black culture without black people by Monica Johnson looks at hip hop and appropriation. And I mean, that's been like a hot kind of, um, kind of debate, um, that somewhat that intersects some with the beginning of, um, the, with the introduction, the first paragraph talks about, um, uh, childish Gambino, yeah. Um, what's this? Uh, Donald Glover talking about um, that? Yeah, you can hear about the nene when it comes up, but that doesn't actually mean that you know much about Black popular culture, right? And um, you know, and so with her thinking about the ways in which um, dance actually is appropriated, um, and 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 just this this desire to sort of like write black people out of a thing of um of things that they produce um is I think an important discussion um and she also does multi-sided work so um I know she does New York City but she has also done work I'm trying I, I know her work beyond her essay here so I'm not remembering um how much of it she um Addresses outside of the United States, but, um, but she does, um, look globally as well at at dance, black dance culture and particularly hip hop. And, and, oh, and Nina Mercer's, um, at the corner of chaos and divine. And so, um, I think Nina might've been the first person to submit her initial draft. Um, so she was hanging in this for a long time because, you know, we know everybody doesn't make deadlines when, the, when, when, the, when things are due, but Nina did. She submitted it early and then, um, and then, you yeah, it just took, it took time to get this all together. And I, I loved that, um, that it's so unconventional right? um, and that, and that she's a, she's an artist. She's a practicing artist. She's a playwright. She is a um, performer. Um, and so I and think at first, she wasn't sure if um, if she should do something that was just more traditional, you know, like the other essays. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and if you know, if the press doesn't like this, I will fight to to keep it the way it is because, um, like, we can't just like we have to, and that's another reason for bringing in the, the visual art. It's like we we can't just be the academics right critiquing. Like Out, we need ultra, people yeah. to produce as well, and um, and so. I thought that was important and and the way in which she weaves it and puts it in conversation with like black arts movement with, um, with, um, you know, actual kind of ritualistic, uh, black ritual theater production, literally like in the streets, um, was, was important. Um, so, um, and then with this one, we have Mark Anthony Neal, who um, was was really one of the early people, um, early scholars, really identifying as doing black popular culture, and with um, with really kind of propelling it forward as a as a field of study, with his uh, early work um, focused on that. Um, you know, he did a lot with music, but he broadly did black popular culture. So, um, so we have him closing out that section,
2: and then the final section, which also features your beautiful essay on Moonlight um mm-hmm. is on loving blackness.
1: Yes. Um I guess that one maybe took a little finessing trying to figure out how to how to pull it together and what you call it. Um but we have a so we have Takia Amin with um the booty don't lie um which I, I love the the title and um talking about dance but also black bodies right and and, and black flesh and um, agency within kind of within these performances, but also with like appropriation, right. And bodies. And, you know, what does it mean when like Siley or Miley Cyrus is twerking and, um, and, and, you know, in relationship to particularly to black women's um, bodies in that context. Um, but she goes through a variety of different um, types of, of dances, like the Harlem shake and Jay Setters and different things and walks us through that history, which, um, for me i always think history is impo- like history matters to me so much i'm not a historian but we're not trained as a historian but um, it's important to see these genealogies and um, and, and evolutions and so her chapter um, works us through walks us through some of that as well um okay so my my chapter is on moonlight and i i waited until really kind of the end to decide what i Cause there's so many different things that I could write on um, to, to kind of see what was, what was missing or what did I hope maybe we had uh, would have had and, and didn't. And I realized we didn't have any film <laughs> and it just, I mean, it, it, that's just sort of how it ended up with um, with who the final contributors were. But I think like, there's no way that we cannot have film. And that, that really is my um, uh, probably favorite area to, to work in. So Um, yeah, first I started out with, and I ended up publishing elsewhere, but I started out with a film on, or with a writing about black romance films and, um, and then decided to switch to Moonlight after it came out. And so, um, I talk about space, um, or like the, or I talk about sound, um, And and silence and, um, and focus on like the soundtrack and the ways in which we kind of read this like black boys, queer identity formation um, in this particular space and time and through through the sound, through the music and through the silence, um, particularly the uh, di- silence and dialogues um, and, and where the music feel, fills in um, for the lack of dialogue. Um and and we get some screenshots too from the film there. So um, it's like, like oh yeah, you don't have to you don't have to get permission or pay for these. So um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know I, for me, I you know I'm I I do visual studies. I actually in the visual um, essay, one of the um, pieces of art is is mine. Um, so yeah, I always want to see something. Um, and then we, the, the last essay in that chapter is Kanohi Konohi Nishikawa. And, um, and I think his actually, we get to see a little bit with that one too, because he, he, um, one of the covers from, from one of the, um, novels that, that he talks about. So he looks at urban fiction, um, and black women readers and, you know, this, this kind of ur- the urban fiction boom was um, I mean it was really quite a boom of the 90s um, and into the 2000s but um, you know whether it was on Oprah Winfrey or whether it was just like particularly with black women um, talking to each other about it so Terry you know whether for me early on it was hearing about Terry McMillan in the 90s and then um, people like Elan Harris and so he um, looks at looks at that um, uh, industry um, and and focuses on um, Black women in that context, which um, and they
2: buy books, yeah, buy books, <laughs> read books, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> um, <laughs> have conversations about books. I mean, it's sort mm-hmm. of funny every time you you sort of see somebody surprised by like, oh, women are people who read, buy, and read books, and you know, and then there are these subgenres inside of books.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, and I think it, you know, it's uh, that particular industry. Both like the urban fiction, and um, around that same time, a lot of self-help, right? Kind of like Black-focused self-help books um, came out, and and so then you did end up having some scholars who um, who address like Black women as readers, um, Black women's book clubs, um, and the book clubs are still quite popular Um, even virtually like my sorority has a um, uh, my historically black sorority has a um, virtual book club during COVID. Um, So, so yes, it's a side of um, to go back to Donald Glover, uh, sort of this part of black culture that you, that, you know, society doesn't really know. (laughs) Like they might think they know black people, but they don't, they don't, they don't really know that well. And then you um, and so
2: we, the, the whole book with Lisa Thompson.
1: Yep. Uh, the, the final interview is um, Patricia Hill Collins, and um, and that's the that's the one that I, I think is the equivalent of an of an essay. Um, and it, it just seemed fitting to um, end with her, even though oh, okay, it seemed fitting to to end with her, even though. She's trained as a sociologist, and sometimes um, you find Black popular culture within sociology departments. But um, but I think that her work has always made us look out, right, um, outside of the academy. Look at um, the realm of popular culture um, and and some t- in, in her some of her work she does explicitly address popular culture so it just seemed like a um, fitting way to end um, and and also she does some some sharp critiques too right it's not it's not all love for it <laughs> Um, there's there's some ways in which she questions certain things. And I think that those are good and important conversations um, that need to be had.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. I was confusing two of the interviews. I apologize for that. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, and, and I was reading the Patricia Hill Collins just before we, we came on um, and finding it really fascinating the way she was, again, sort of conceptualizing and thinking about um, the questions that you start the book with. So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to sort of end the book, too, because it does thread through a lot of what you start out with and that you've also sort of mentioned, the role of context and the genealogy um, and understanding the evolution of Black popular culture, both in the United States and, and elsewhere. Um, and I, I, found it, I found it a very good conclusion. Um, <laughs>
1: good. And as you, as you we, said, we you know, we, we wanted it to work that way.
2: <laughs> and, and as you said, it, 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 while it was an interview, it was a kind of more like a meditation, um, and an essay, uh, which also, again, it's like the, the book was really interesting to read because it did have so many parts that, You read and experienced in different ways, like popular culture, which I really Mm -hmm. appreciated because, as you say, it's a print book and there's only so much you can do. Um, But I I found that going through the book was really um, an experience that's different from a lot of just reading a book. Um so kudos to you well, and your your co-author. Um and I wanted to ask you now what are you working on to follow this okay. up.
1: Well I, I one thing I just want to interject is that um it, it's unfortunate Dwan couldn't participate. Uh she teaches high school American studies and English so um she doesn't have quite the same flexibility in her schedule like I do. But um it she is a phenomenal editor. <laughs> <laughs> like um, I have used her for two of my books as as well, just to like you know, not for the technical. Well, she's good with the technical, but also with the ideas, and really pushing people to like flesh out their ideas and um, and to think in, in all these different kinds of ways. That I'm glad that came through in the final product. So, um, oh yeah, in, yeah and yeah, so yeah. I just <laughs> want to um, shout out to her and. So with what I'm working on now, um, I think I'm about ready for Dwan to give me some feedback on my, <laughs> on my current project because it, it always it always pushes me um, to be better. But I'm working on a project that has been in the making and works for a while. Um, it's called Becoming Educated, a Midwest story of race and law and culture. And I started it, I decided to go to law school when I was on tenure track. Don't I? I, w- I won't even get into how that okay. happened. It was, I, I'm I'm still sometimes not sure how exactly how it really happened. But um, but the pragmatist that I am, I'm like, okay, I cannot do these finals and have nothing that comes out of it. So the classes that um, uh, weren't exam based, I um, I would make I would write s I would write make sure that my essays kind of fit either my um, last monograph on um black masculinities, um, when we imagine grace. So a number of those chapters were written there. But then there were this project, I wrote a couple, and it just sort of came out of um, a jurisprudence class and having to pick something to basically determine if it was just so like I went with Is like education under the law just or something like that? And I had to figure out what to write it on. So I, at the time, two of my three sons were in a small private school called Mansion Day School, which um, was not always all black, but with some sort of um, demographic shifts in uh, Columbus, Ohio, um, ended up becoming um, with, with a lot of the like, white and Asian um, students eventually moving to suburban school districts. And, um, and fa- the school kind of fascinated me because it was run kind of like um, like a mini HBCU, but also very much on the model of Southern education between reconstruction and, and um, desegregation. Um, and so I wanted to think about the ways that Black middle-class parents, when they have at least some means, what kind of choices are available to them? Um, and, and so then it just sat, like I I had two chapters. I got some grants to do some, some, um, to go to like Mississippi and visit this boarding school, this black boarding school, Piney Woods. And it just sat and I got busy. I went into administration. I needed to finish. Are you entertained? And I kept resisting going back to it. And I think I decided that I didn't really like the way it was going. (laughs) Um, I mean, people liked it, but it was, um, it was kind of like a mix between, a historical study and, um, and law review journal article. And like, that's not totally me. And so now the way that I'm doing it, and I had a fellowship this summer with the center, um, at the national gallery for the, the center for advanced, um, for study of in advanced visual art or something. I can't remember. It's CASPA. Okay. Um, <laughs> I make, I mess up the, the prepositions where, where, where the prepositions belong in that name. But I decided to bring in, I decided to instead tell a story about desegregation of Columbus public schools and to do it through art, visual art and music um, and narrative of of, of some of the kind of legal and historical things that happened. And I tell it from the perspective of actually being from Columbus, Ohio, and being uh, and starting kindergarten one year after the Supreme Court ordered schools to be desegregated, um, which was very late um, compared to most of the rest of the country. And um, and so I kind of tell the stories that led up to that. I tell my stories of um, being in going through an integrated school system and then of being a parent who's upper middle class instead of working class as I grew up and trying to make choices and the different choices um, that my children have experienced, which really are quite across the spectrum. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so they're like kind of little vignettes that tell these different little stories and I bring in visual art. Because for me, like becoming educated wasn't just about what was happening in the classroom. And it's kind of like my sense of popular culture too. And my sense of the law, it's like the law is informed by, I don't care what it says about colorblind justice and all that. Um, it's informed by culture and, and culture also is informed by the law. So, um, you know, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, or what I can see now when I think about what I experienced is just as much about becoming educated in these particular spaces um, as the legal cases that dictated to some extent how I was educated and how children now are being educated um, when we when the courts have determined that we've met the threshold for desegregation and they no longer enforce it. Right? So, um, yeah, so that's <laughs> that's what I'm working on now. And um, so it's multimedia. It's multimedia. It's, I mean, it. I'm having fun doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, which maybe is the most important thing um, because it's like, and I moved that way with my second book. Um, I can't remember what really old English word my editor at Chicago used for it, but it's basically like, I w- thought it was really eclectic. Um, <laughs> and this one is even more so, but I mean, the other thing that I wanted was, um, I, <sighs> Some of the like public speaking I've done, especially on popular on, on visual and popular culture, I've had family members who have shown up at the events, <laughs> and I don't tell them to come. They I just they see it on Facebook, and so they they've shown up. And actually, I have really enjoyed the conversations that I have with them. And these these are people who are not I mean by far not academics. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversations they've had for, I've had with them, and they've really enjoyed what I've talked about in ways that I don't think my students often enjoy what I have to talk about. And so I have been working more and more towards trying to make my, um, like the the scholarship that I'm doing basically be engaged, that it's more public facing, that it's more engaged. Um, And unlike my first book where I had lots of family and friends who, even like my husband's friends, they're really excited that I published a book. They don't know anybody who's published books. And then when they ask, when I tell them the title, (laughs) They're like, oh, they're, they're well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, we didn't even get into what the book is about. But it's like, well, what's the title mean? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I need to rethink, like, my audience. And I don't think my audience is entirely an academic audience that I really want to be able to have conversations with. And so I think this book will do that. Um, I, I hope that maybe we can um, at the Wexner center here at Ohio state um, Wexner center for the arts, maybe exhibit some of the visual art that I analyze. Cool. I also wrote a children's story that's an, a, to accompany the, um, the book. I, did, I didn't, this, this all just sort of like organically happens. Like one day I just woke up and I was like, Oh,
2: that's what I'm I doing. going to
1: write this book called the good morning space or the good morning spot. And, um, and it, it connects because it's kind of like about how my youngest child sort of become educated on like mommy needing space. Right. And, and how he fits into that space. And um, I haven't illustrated it yet, but I'm going to give it a shot. That's wow. usually not, it's not usually the kind of um, medium that I, um, um, use when I, when I do art, but, um, but I figure well, I'll, I'll try it. If not, I have a friend that I'll ask <laughs> if he wants to illustrate it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm like, I'm hoping that the book and the children's book can kind of be paired and that we might have an
2: exhibit and, um, I don't know, who knows. That sounds so cool. Well, I hope that I will be able to talk to you about the published book. And possibly also the children's book on the podcast again. Oh, that would be great. Um uh, <laughs> I
1: finished this book up. I started in 2013 but, in law school classes, but uh, you know, I, I I should have it fully drafted. With it, well, COVID messed
2: up some things. COVID but. messed up everything. <laughs> I I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, I wanted to thank you for being with me today, Simone Drake, one of the two editors with Dwan Henderson um, of Are You Entertained? Black Popular Culture in the 21st Century. This is published by Duke University Press in 2020, and it's available on the Duke University Press website, I assume, and any place else one likes to buy their books. Thank you so much for joining me today, Simone.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Lily. i very much enjoyed talking to you and I hope to talk to you again.